0: The spirit of loving kindness for yourself and all beings. Let's begin the session by settling the body in its natural state. Let's go slowly and gently by bringing your awareness to this field of somatic sensations and relaxing deeply within this field setting your body at ease, in a posture of comfort and relaxation. Surrendering your muscles to gravity. Drop your shoulders, surrender those muscles to gravity. Bring your awareness to the face, soften, loosen every muscle in the face, especially those around the eyes, the forehead. Soften the eyes themselves. And as your body does feel comfortable and at ease, then let it be still, apart from the movement of the breath, no unnecessary movement. If you're sitting upright, let your spine be straight and erect, your sternum slightly lifted your abdominal muscles loose and relaxed, so that when you breathe in the sensations of the breath go way down to the lower abdomen, expanding the belly as you breathe in, the belly falling back as you breathe out. In this way, settle your body in its natural state, a posture of relaxation, stillness, and vigilance. And even in the supine position, you adopt the vigilance psychologically, not spacing out or becoming complacent. In order to settle the speech of the mind, the mental chitchat, in its natural state of effortless silence, settle your respiration in its natural rhythm unforced effortless unconstrained take advantage of every outbreath as a time to relax more and more deeply in the body Time to release the out-breath to the very end until there's nothing more to give away. As you breathe out, release any thoughts, images, memories that may come to mind. Simply release them, dissolve them back into the space of the mind. After your mind in its natural state by, first of all, setting your mind in a state of ease and comfort, releasing all your concerns, hopes, and fears about the future and the past. Free of grasping, let your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment. awareness is naturally clear and luminous, so you need to do nothing about that, nothing to be cultivated, nothing to be strived for. It's already clear and luminous, so in this way settle your mind in its natural state, relaxed, still and clear. Sustaining the stillness of awareness. Letting this be your anger, your anger in space. Let there be a peripheral awareness of that which is obvious, and that is within this, within this somatic field, the space of the body. You naturally experience these fluctuations according to, are corresponding to, the in-and-out-breath. So with just peripheral awareness, you will easily note, when the in-breath is long, that it is long, when the out-breath is long, that it is long, relatively speaking. Don't go looking for it. Don't focus here or there, neither in the nostrils or the abdomen or anywhere else. That your awareness remains still, resting right where it is. Self-cognizant, self-illuminating. Now, for as long as you find the breath is long, the in and out breath, as long as you find it variable, sometimes long, sometimes there may be a pause after the out breath, maybe short and then long again, as long as you find the respiration is working itself out, balancing itself out, finding its own rhythm, long, long, sometimes short, Among the three qualities of relaxation, stability, and vividness, emphasize above all a sense of relaxation. Continue to relax fully into every out-breath, releasing all the way through to the end and simply allowing the next breath to flow in effortlessly without pulling it in. So continue to focus primarily on relaxation, as long as the in-and-out breath is long or variable. after some time, whether incrementally or quite suddenly. Once the turbulence, the conceptual turbul- turbulence of the mind has calmed down, and the turbulence also of the nervous system, or of the prana system within the body, has been soothed, calmed. Quite naturally, your body will not need as much oxygen, so the breath will become shallower. The duration of the in and out breath will become relatively short. Smooth, silky, refined, subtle. If at some point you find that you've slipped into that mode of breathing, Maintain that sense of ease and relaxation in body and mind. But begin to emphasize more the stability, the continuity of attention. Attending to the whole course of the in-breath, the whole course of the out-breath. a continuous flow. And again, you're not directing your attention here or there, but simply maintaining a peripheral awareness of these increasingly subtle fluctuations within the field of the body, indicating the in and out breath. Now the emphasis combined relaxation and stability of attention. If and when it happens, that your respiration settles into such a subtle flow, relatively short in-and-out breath, and it's quite continuous, and you will very likely find that the sensations of these fluctuations within the field of the body corresponding to respiration become subtler and subtler. When this occurs, then you rise to the third challenge, and that is to enhance the vividness, the acuity, the clarity of your attention. So that even when these Fluctuations associated with the breath become very, very subtle. You're still able to discern them, maintain the flow of cognizance, All the while at the primary emphasis, beyond sustaining the stillness of your awareness like an unflickering candle flame, straight, still, and clear. Maintain that flow of awareness, of being aware, as your primary cognizance. And peripherally, be aware of the sensations throughout this field of the in and out flow of the breath. Let's continue now in silence. So, Elizabeth reminded me that tomorrow is data collection day, correct? Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, yeah? Yep. So, are they set up to uh, turn on the... Yeah, good. I did too. I, I sent an email to Kun some days ago. So, for Biata and Michelle, don't worry about it. This is something that started earlier, so don't give it a second thought. Um, but for the rest of you, of course, if, if you... Uh, for any reason. You don't even have to tell anybody what the reason is. If you'd like not to do it anymore, don't. Um, but if you'd like to continue, uh, once again, as I said before, the motivation here is not simply curiosity, but um, might actually be helpful uh, for people to develop shamatha more effectively. You know, Might be, but it will be interesting, I think. So if you'd like to participate, I'd really wel- welcome that. I uh, thank you if you decide not to. I won't know about it, and you certainly don't need to explain yourself. All you have to do is decide, I don't want to do it anymore, and that's the end of the conversation. It's a one way conversation from your side. Okay? So I hope that's very clear, no pressure here at all. So there we are. So good, we'll have that tomorrow, and there will be one more data collection uh, a couple of weeks from now. Lasso. So, as most of you know, and Beata and Michelle, I just let you know now, we are just, uh, last, yesterday I gave the oral translation for the concluding section of the first of the three transitional processes that are the uh, content for this retreat. The transitional process of living, in which the focus is on shamatha and vipassana, I think I found it an immensely rich presentation. And I finished reading it last night, um, but not quite finished the commentary. Uh, And so I just want to come back very, very briefly, just to remind you what I'm commenting on. They're quite extraordinary statements. And here it is on page 139, uh, referring to this Buddha this nature, primordial consciousness. That essence, having no causes or conditions, has dominion over everything and it does everything. That's a very strong statement, right? And then the next one, perhaps if anything even more so, this is Samantabhadra speaking, Samantabhadra is the very personification, the embodiment of, primordial consciousness, this is the first person singular, I, all phenomena are I, so if this nature of mine is known, all phenomena will be known. So that's just that. Uh, these are such extraordinary statements, and they run so they're so profoundly alien, I mean, just kind of like, what? <laughs> no. From our 21st century, actually in most phases of most cultures throughout history, those would be quite... Um, exceptional claims, to put it mildly. At the same time, they're not anomalous within the Buddhist context. Uh, the Buddha Shakyamuni was practicing mindfulness of breathing. He practiced Samadhi Vipassana. Out of that came his awakening. And by the Theravada account, the Theravada interpretation of the Pali Canon, uh, there was really no placing of any limits on the scope of what he could know. You know he would direct his attention. It would become manifest. So once again, that's quite astonishing already, that's from the Theravada interpretation of the Pali Canon, when we move to Mahayana, then it's somewhat different, even a larger interpretation of what is meant by the unboundedness of the Buddha's awareness, and the statement there throughout all of Mahayana is that the Buddha's awareness is omnipresent throughout space and time, at all times, so that's a bigger statement. Not simply that he can focus here and there and have the object of ascension be revealed but a larger statement. Really, that sounds like more like the divine awareness. Really, if, God, if there's a God, it would sound like the kind of awareness or wisdom that a God would have. But, of course, obviously some differences. We'll not go into those. But now we're going right to that Dharmakaya, right to that Dharmakaya, that Buddha nature, and these extraordinary statements, that by the practice that we've been doing here, I mean, just awareness of awareness... And then going to the Vipassana, the Vipassana and the nature of mind, the Vipassana and the nature of awareness itself, to determine through direct investigation, does your mind, is awareness itself, does it have its own inherent nature? Does it exist by its own intrinsic identity? Or is it too as empty as anything else, as a table, a chair, a galaxy or an atom? And so what is the mode of existence of the mind and of awareness? And then when all is said and done, and there's nothing more to say and nothing more to do, then you simply rest in awareness and you cut through to primordial consciousness. And then he's saying, if you do that, then this opens the door, this unveils, illuminates reality. So it is a means then, such practices that we've been doing for the last couple of weeks, three weeks, is a means not only to fathom the nature of your mind, your own identity, what it is to be an observer, what it is to be an agent, nature of consciousness, nature of primordial consciousness, substrate consciousness, substrate, not only that, I mean, that would be enough, frankly, I'd be very content, but it's saying, now all phenomena become evident. That's an absolutely extraordinary claim. So how does that go down in the 21st century? There is the claim. And as I said, when I present a view that I will critique, I see no reason from this point on to... Give the name of the person who's saying it, because it doesn't really matter. It's the statement. So I'm not going know, to, I know the person who made the statement I'm about to quote. I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to say him, so now you know it's going to be on one side of the three and a half billion people on the planet. It's this side, not that side. So go figure. You know, if you want to search, it's going to be a long search. Um, so here's the statement. It's a direct quote. There's a diff- di- big difference between making claims about the mind. And making claims about the cosmos. Every religion, including Buddhism, uses first-person experience to do both of those things, but the latter pretensions to knowledge, knowledge about the cosmos, are almost always unwarranted. That is, by religions, when religious people do that. Almost always, they blow it. They're unwarranted, unfounded. Can't be taken seriously. And here's the statement. There is nothing that you can experience in the darkness of your closed eyes that will help you understand the Big Bang, or the connection between consciousness and the physical world. Look within, and you will find no evidence that you even have a brain, much less gain any insight into how it works. Now, that's quite a different statement than the one I just read. So they can't both be right. But it is true that religions, especially as we understand the term, because the very, we, we really need to be, do need to be aware, for us U.S. centric people, that the very category of religion is a Western construct. You don't find that in Sanskrit in Tibetan and Pali and Mongolian. You don't find that. It's, there's just no word for religion. That's our baby. That's our construct, our category. And it makes perfectly good sense to us. What was Socrates? Was he a scientist, or a, rel- a religious, religious figure, or was he a philosopher? We know that before we can even finish the sentence. What about Jesus and Moses? Were they scientists? Were they philosophers? What about Newton? Was he a, uh, you know, well actually he wrote a lot of theology, you know. But nevertheless, what he's famous for, of course, is many be regarded as the greatest scientist of all time. And so these are categories we feel very comfortable with. A bit of a problem though is they don't fit very well outside of our own culture. And many people write about that are not aware of that. But it is certainly true within the categories of religion that many claims about the physical universe made by religious people, uh, whether in, in one scripture or another, turn out, upon careful investigation or scientific inquiry, to be hard to validate, to put it that way. Um, but if that statement, the ones I just read, are true, if that's true not only of some other religion, but if that's true... Of Buddhism, which many people regard as a religion, then then this book is false. It's very sweet. It's very nice, but it's false. You know. So, can we? Is this? Is there any way that this can be true if what I just read there is true? In other words, does knowing the mind, fathoming the nature of the mind? does that have any implications for understanding the nature of physical reality? I would suggest there's empirical evidence that the statement I just read is, is incomplete, only partially true at best, and profoundly misleading. But now in the following way, because I need evidence. and not just saying, you know, my dad's bigger than your dad. Uh, my, my dad is bigger than your dad. <laughs> the Buddha was really quite large, I understand. You know. But in any case, you know, jesting aside, when Herbert Benson did his film documentary, this research medical doctor at Harvard did his documentary on these extraordinarily accomplished uh, tumult practitioners, they were doing things with the body that really were medically impossible. They had no explanation for it at all, right? And they're doing that purely by knowing the mind, by pract- engaging in visualizations and and pranic practices. It's tumult. It's tumult. And I've been trained in that. I'm, I'm not an expert by any means but I know the kind of practices they were doing, and it's very much about the nature of the mind. right? And so they must know something about the body to be able to bring about these effects that no scientist can do. Scientists have no idea how to generate that much heat in the body or how anybody else can do it either. So I guess that would imply that going deeply into the nature of the mind and engaging in really overwhelmingly mental exercises, with some breathing to be sure, but if your mind isn't there, then you're just doing huffing puffing, you know, you will never get it just by doing a breathing exercise. But that must give some, rise to some insight into the body that is actually invisible to neuroscientists, because they have no idea how to, well, how to explain it, let alone how to do it. And then, as we all know, over the last couple of weeks, we've had one adept after, after another, Geshe Sopa, and the, uh, the consort, the wife of Dujanomache, and the Geshe Chuden going to this clear light of death. Well, once again, it does happen. It's just, it's just evidence. They must know something about the body that we don't know. Otherwise, how can the body stop breathing, everything stop, and it doesn't decompose? It absolutely has to decompose. That's what bodies do, except for they clearly know something we don't know. So they must know something there. Now, what about that yogi out there in Nepal? He's, he, he, he dies and then there's rainbows all over the place. If that were once, we'd say, well, what a very cool coincidence. But this has happened so many hundreds of times. A yogi dies, and there's rainbows all over the place, let alone rainbow body, just rainbows, you know. If it's not a coincidence, then there must be something relating his deep samadhi and the surrounding environment. Rainbows are, you can photograph them. There must be some connection there. But now let's go even wilder. I haven't seen this, but three people I know, all of them trusted, I know them personally, honest, total integrity, when they say this, I believe them because I know them well. I know three people who've seen Tibetan yogis levitating, hovering in midair. Not bouncing, not bouncing, hovering in midair. The Kagyupas, by the way, they're rather good at that. you know. And so one is a Geshe I know, impeccable honesty, a full, fully ordained monk. He saw it in Tibet. There was a Kagyupma monastery outside a outside plaza where they do this every year. It's kind of a little show to give people the encouragement. You know, it's still alive, we're still doing it. And he watched. He watched these three yogis. One was like six feet above the ground, another one three feet, the other one kind of oh, kind of hovering, kind of bumping a little bit, like, okay, there's, there's papa bear, there's mama bear, and the baby bears were having a little bit of a hard time. It's a good effort, A for effort, you know? Or E for effort, I don't know. But he saw it. Then another friend of mine, he was living in Dashijong, major, very macho kagyupa encampment of incredible yogis. And I think he got up in the middle of the night to pee and he saw the door. There's a little crack in the door. There was light coming through the door and he kind of was curious, open it up. Just by this kerosene lamps, he saw, again, several yogis in midair, just deep samadhi, hovering in midair. And then a friend of mine told me recently, going to a Jonanba monastery, which is kind of an offshoot of Kagyu, very strong in kala chakra. Same thing happened. Opened a door that weren't quite supposed to open. Saw yogis levitate, just hovering right there in midair. Three people saw that. Well, I just don't, I think it's irrational for me to believe it's all a conspiracy to trick Alan Wallace. They're all just yanking my chain, you know. I can't believe that. I mean, it'd be so egocentric. But also, you know, why would they? I don't need to believe in in levitation. I'll have a very happy life not believing in levitation. But if it happens, if it ever happened once, all you need is once if there's ever been a Tibetan or Hindu yogi, and there are also reports there. And then, I'm going to go a little tangent. Years ago, when I was at UC Santa Barbara, teaching there, I was teaching there for four years, a fellow sought me out. I don't think I mentioned him in this retreat. Sufi. And an atomic physicist. And an accomplished Sufi. He really, he demonstrated Siddhi. He demonstrated. I didn't see him do it personally, but I saw it in a film in a medical uh, setting at oh, something like Cleveland City Hospital, something like that. It was all video, but it was all in a medical condition. He did a city, he showed it right there. But he told me, but, so there he was, an atomic physicist, teaching in Baghdad and teaching, I think, also in Jordan, because he's from Jordan, a dual position. But he was also Su- Sufi, taught Sufi, and then he was interested in really doing research all over the Near East into people, yogis, who display cities. So he checked out Christians, he checked out Sufis, and so forth. He was way up in Afghanistan someplace and found some Christian yogis, and they were levitating. He's an atomic physicist, Why would, and where's the vested interest? He's a Sufi talking to a Buddhist. Why would he lie about Christian yogis who can levitate? That doesn't serve him or me, but what he's doing is telling me what he saw. If that's ever happened once, you can start rewriting the laws of physics, because that shouldn't happen ever. Which means the yogis can do that, and of course I believe it. It's part of the tradition. And actually, they'll tell you exactly how to do it. It's not like just blessed by God. It's you do these methods. And then when you're doing your, your jumping, your Bekchen, your great leap, then you just don't come down, as if you're having a lucid dream. You go up, you'll come down eventually, but at your leisure. If that's ever happened once, start rewriting the laws of physics. And then you can rewrite the laws of biology. And then you can have your first revolution in the mind sciences. Now, I'm an old geezer. I've been around for a while. I've had an interesting array. Not not anything spectacular seeing levitation, but three things that I saw. They violate the laws of physics. The first one was a Sikh when I was living in Dharmasala, early 70s. This Sikh materialized fine ash out of thin air. Physical, I touched it, I saw it and he, out of nowhere he was reciting a mantra in samadhi and he manifested it I saw it he must know something about the physical world that the physicists don't know because they can't do that so he must know something about, but he, he was a Sikh he wasn't a physicist Sikh he was an interesting old codger he also displayed clairvoyance to me I knew it and then years later for a nice variety Qigong Master Chinese didn't speak English but he demonstrated something for which there's no I checked I've checked with a number of scientists no scientific explanation he would direct his qi with his with his hands in ways that defy any scientific explanation whatsoever and i experienced it on my own body there was no natural so-called natural of course there was a natural explanation a natural explanation within, within the understanding of qigong and the type of qigong healing that he was doing he was rather well known for it uh, he must have known something about the physical body because he was doing things that no biologist can do. right? And then, more recently, a Tibetan yogi who spent, what was it, nine years in solitary meditation in the caves up above Samye, Samye Chingpu, where the 108 caves where Patna disciples were. And this yogi, I got to know him. In fact, uh, I'm inviting him to Santa Barbara. Uh, so we hope to have him here, have him in Santa Barbara, within a matter of months. Uh, he spent nine, nine years in solitary retreat. Out of that, he had a vision of Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava gave him a city. In the city, he puts a, a little black stone into his mouth. He goes into samadhi, takes the step black stone out, and then he uses that black stone as a wrathful form of healing. And when you put the black stone on your body, it burns your body as if it's a red-hot iron. One, two, three, four, five when this is, oh, now, what's that? 15 months old. But it was like, I experienced this five times, and it was like being branded with a red-hot iron, intensely painful. The the skin melted. There was uh, smoke coming up from the skin. He did this to about 30 people. Uh, It was a a whole series of healing sessions. But when it would cool off, after he'd done this, like a couple, of, I think he did it he did it maybe three times on me, then it was cooling off. He put it back into his mouth to charge it again. I saw it. I have it on video. Because there were two lamas there. One lama video, uh, videotaping, this lama doing this to me. So I have a record. He'd put it back into his mouth, recharge it. But he'd show his tongue, one of the healthiest tongues I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> That was if, if a tongue could be happy, this was a really happy tongue. <laughs> it was pink and rosy. He would just take a hanky out, though, because when he put the stone in, there would be melted skin on the stone. And so he would, he would use a hanky to get the dead skin off his tongue. And then go to work again. Uh, they estimate that the temperature of the stone was something like between one and 2,000 degrees. I think he knows something about the nature of heat. <laughs> and he knows it only by samadhi, only by his meditations. In fact, I'll tell you what he saw just before he received this city. He was having a dream. He was very careful about his words. He didn't, he didn't say, I saw Padmasambhava. He simply said, in my dream, I experienced an appearance of Padmasambhava. He's very radically empirical there. And Padmasambhava came over to him in the dream took him by the hair. He doesn't have much. He's a monk, but you know, got him a little bit. Picked him up and put him in a big cauldron of fire. He just dunked him in the fire. And there the yogi told me that his... He told everybody, this is a very public statement, that his body was incinerated to fine ash. He was just burnt to a crisp. And then Padmasambhava came and reformed him and pulled him out of the cauldron and said... Your samadhi is very stable. <laughs> and then when he came, when he woke up, he was back in his cave above Samye, there was this obsidian-like shiny black stone that had suddenly suddenly appeared in his cave. And that's the, cave, that's the stone he uses to heal people. And he heals people by the thousands. He's not well-known in the West. He's only been to Canada twice, the last time a year ago, last May, and that's when I met him. Uh... When he goes to Beijing or Shanghai, they line up, 2,000 people will line up to receive either the wrathful or the gentle healing. I've received both. The gentle is quite nice. The wrathful is very memorable. (laughs) So it seems that knowing the nature of the mind, knowing how to draw forth the power of the mind by the empirical evidence, I've not cited any source here, any Buddha, any big, big shot, what I've seen, what other people have seen. That person is wrong. Now, does this mean that you know every statement made by some religious person about the cosmos is right? silly. Of course not. But to say that you can't know anything—that's false. You can. You can. So I think this has not been refuted. The next statement is interesting, and again has merit to it. But I think, well, let's see. Let's see what this person says. Buddhists make claims about invisible entities, spiritual energies, other planes of existence, and so forth. However, claims of this kind are generally suspect because they are based on experiences that are open to rival interpretations. Invisible entities, like Padmasambhava appearing in a dream. Invisible entities, or like what did he call it, spiritual energies, like chi, yeah, spiritual energies, vital energies, prana, chi. They make claims, well, uh, from my own experience, limited, but it's enough. There's, there is no evidence, there's no reasoning that can possibly persuade me that prana doesn't exist or that chakras don't exist. I'm no expert, but I've meditated maybe 40,000 hours by now. Something happens, five years in, in solitary retreat, so I'm making no claims except for it, it wasn't nothing at all. And you do become aware of your body and you become aware of chakras. I mean, sooner or later it's bound to come up. And so that's not speculation for me. It's, and, and I'm an amateur compared to so many yogis I've trained with. I'm a complete amateur. Uh, but what these tummo practitioners are doing, that's spirit, so-called spiritual energies, um, that they're suspect, well, okay, if that's suspect, well, anything suspect. But the final statement, as a person I have spent a lot of time studying the history and philosophy of science, claims of this kind are generally suspect because they're based on experiences that are open to rival interpretations. I find that statement quite extraordinarily naive. Because tell me, tell me an experience that is not open to rival interpretations. Really? Uh, that's kind of a silly statement. right? As if you have an experience, there's only one possible way to interpret it. I spend a lot of time studying philosophy of science, and all philosophers of science know that. You give any piece of evidence, and it lends itself to being viewed, perspective, understood, conceptualized in different frameworks. I did my whole undergraduate thesis work for two and a half years on the zero point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum. It's a reality, it's proven, there's empirical evidence for it. But what does it mean? How is it to be understood? And that's where I really, that was my thesis. I had nothing to add to the physics. I really spent a couple of years studying because I was fascinated. I'm fascinated by, uh, by empty space, and I'm fascinated by energy. You see the connection, maybe, yeah? And by the most brilliant physicists, multiple interpretations. But there's empirical evidence called the Casimir effect. And then there were multiple effects. Scientists have empirically validated that there is an energy to empty space itself. You take out all the ener- other energy, thermal, electromagnetic, th- everything else, I take all the matter out of it. And in the very nature of empty space, there is energy. And in quantum field theory, it said, and I've mentioned this before, that all configurations of mass energy are, in fact, emergences from, configurations of, the energy of an empty space. But it's open to rival interpretations, and they've not been resolved yet. Right? That doesn't invalidate the zero-point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum. In fact, the existence of that is not debated. They simply have different interpretations for it. So, if this is okay for physics, then it has to be okay for Buddhism as well. But when it comes to planes of existence like form realm, formless realm, four dhyanas within the form realm, formless samapattis within the form realm, there's no debate there. I mean, I think it would be tr- if there's any debate at all, it's trivial. It's really microscopic. From the Pali canon, the Theravada, the Mahayana, the Tibet, <gasps> when describing these different planes of existence, there's no debate at all. And moreover, the the Buddha himself said that yogis prior to him, including his two samadhi teachers, knew this very, very well. It's not a matter of debate. So that's not true. That was actually very, very misleading. But let's see how misleading it is. So we're finished with that. And so now I'd like to go to... Ah, yeah, the first one. That if you fathom the nature of the mind... All you'll learn about is the mind, but you won't even learn about the brain, which is right there, so closely related, or the body, or anything else. And that is, it's an inside job, as if your mind is hermetically sealed. Now, of course, nobody says that from looking from the mind at, from the outside. And that is, if somebody studied Patrice's brain, her brain isn't the mind. Her brain isn't thoughts and images and so forth. I mean, right? Uh, and yet, nevertheless. Can studying Patrice's brain, might that be an indirect avenue for learning about her mind? Sure. And how about interviewing Patrice? Well, her words are not the mind either. But if you interview her, might we learn something about Patrice's mind that way? Sure. How about studying her facial expressions and body language and so forth? Might we learn something about her mind that way? Sure. That's uncontested, right? So it frankly doesn't really make any sense in a way that you can learn about the mind by looking at it from outside. By, by, by learning about the mind, you'll learn nothing about the outside. There's an asymmetry. And that kind of asymmetry has basically fallen apart every time it's cropped up in the history of science. There's a symmetry. Symmetry. It goes both ways. But understandably, if the mind, when we're investigating, probing into the nature of the mind with shamatha, with vipassana, with Dzogchen, Mahamudra, and so forth, if the mind is really nothing more than the mind that arises independent upon brain function, and of course there is such a mind, it's called our, our psyche, if that's all there is to it, then I think it's a very reasonable hypothesis that you can learn a lot about your mind, your emotions, you really get to know yourself, your feelings, your thoughts, deep, thorough psychoanalysis, personality typology, and all of that. You can learn a lot through introspection about your mind, woman's mind, man's mind, and so forth, and not learn anything about anything outside. I think that's quite feasible. But of course, that isn't the Buddhist view, or the view of any other contemplative tradition that I know of, because they've actually looked into the mind and found you can plummet through, beyond the the surface foam of your ordinary mind, configured mind, to something deeper. The Hindus discovered that centuries and centuries ago. So have the Christians. So of the Sufis, so of the Taoists. It's common knowledge among contemplative traditions. There's something deeper there than simply the male mind feel, male mind, and so forth. And then in contemplative traditions all over the world, tapping through to something that is universal, that is transpersonal, trans-individual. There's a I wouldn't say, certainly, their views are not articulated in the same way, uh, but nevertheless, there is reason to believe based upon experience, internal experience. But maybe there's a lot more to mind and consciousness than simply the surface level that arises independent upon the brain. But now, do we? Are we now pitting religion versus science? Are we going to be into that awful, awful encounter once again? You know, the ooey gui people, the people who have all the love and all the love, la. You know, the religion, and then the hard-nosed people. Give me the facts. Give me the evidence. Give me the reasoning. Come on, cough it up. Are we back into that left brain, right brain, intuition versus reason, and so forth, or are there you know first rate scientists that have probed so deeply into the nature of matter that they ask very deep questions about the nature of the universe pertaining to the mind that has fathomed the nature of matter so I'll, I'll cite here a person who is quite renowned, not as much as andre of uh, Stephen Hawking or John Wheeler, let's say, but he's a Stanford cosmologist. His name is Andrei Linde. He's a Russian-American, Russian-American. He's very eminent, very distinguished, full professor and Tao chair in cosmology at Stanford University. Never met him. I was there, but I never met him. I wasn't studying physics. But he writes, as a person who has done seminal work in the inflationary phase of the evolution of the cosmos, of the universe, he writes this, and I quote him directly, the standard assumption is that consciousness, just like space-time before the invention of general relativity, plays a secondary, subservient role, being just a function of matter and a tool for the description of the truly existing material world. Isn't that lovely? These are his words. He has I've never met him, but I know people who do know him. He's not a Buddhist. He's not trained in Buddhism. He's a, a physicist. But his choice of words is quite extraordinary. So that's the standard assumption. Consciousness is just derivative. It's epiphenomena. It arises from configurations of matter. Just a function of matter. A tool for the description of the truly existing material world. His words. But then he adds, but let us remember that our knowledge of the world begins not with matter, but with perceptions. Which, of course, is consciousness we are substituting the reality of our feelings by successfully work, by, by, the, by, by the successfully working theory of an independently existing material world. And the theory is so successful that we almost never think about its possible limitations. It's reminiscent of Anton Seininger, saying, yes, there are these invariants, that is, multiple people make observations, they find commonalities, and then when we... Have two people. Oh, Marta, you know my impression about Gachi is this. What do you think is what? My impression is this. Here's my. What do you think And then she's. Oh yeah, I found that too. Now we found an independent reality. You know that's the what we do all the time. It's called third third person perspective. Right? She's the first one. She's the first person. Let's say, and I'm number two, number three. Oh, you agree? Me too. Yeah. You saw? that was. Did she feel really kind of grumpy that day? Yeah, that was my impression too. We now know that. Gache was inherently, existingly grumpy because Marta and I have a shared perception. Except for, no, we don't. That just means we have a shared perception. It's an invariant between two people. Now, we might ask Gache; She might have an inside track on that one. But even if you have a whole bunch of people, an invariant, what you can say is, okay, now this, is inv- this in- invariant, which simply means commonality, the same, from multiple perspectives, which means that may be very useful. But does the mere fact that it is something it is an invariant from intersubjective perspectives does that necessarily imply that it exists independently of all perspectives? Or is it simply what it is, invariant across multiple cognitive frames of reference? Right? So he's challenging this. this very eminent cosmologist. He simply calls this a a successfully working theory of an independently existent material world. But maybe that's all it is. It's a very useful theory. But now here's a quote from my book, um, Mind in the Balance, and I'm picking up right with him. Linda then hypothesizes that consciousness, like space-time, might have its own characteristics independent of matter, and that neglecting this will lead to a description of the universe that is fundamentally incomplete and misleading. Is it possible, he asks, and this quotation, is it possible to introduce a space of elements of consciousness and investigate a possibility that consciousness may exist by itself, even in the absence of matter, just like gravitational waves, excitations of space, May exist in the absence of protons and electrons. Excitations of space, that's my baby. That's the zero point energy of the electromagnetic vacuum. It's an excitation of not of nothing. If you have just a volume with nothing whatsoever, it doesn't get excited. Right? An absolute vacuum just sits there with nothing. No, he's speaking from contemporary physics. Excitations of, the va- excitations of space, excitation perturbations, fluctuations of the energy of empty space. They can also be called quantum fluctuations. Not quite the same, but certainly related. So may they exist so? He hypothesizes, Andre Linde hypothesizes that with the further development of science, the study of the universe and the study of consciousness will be found to be inseparably linked and that ultimate progress in the one will be impossible without progress in the other. Isn't that totally cool? And this, just by the way, I, uh, it's in the notes. It'll be downloaded very soon. Um, this was not, as you can imagine, this guy is not writing in a New Age journal. You know, It's inflation, quantum cosmology, and the anthropic principle in science and ultimate reality, quantum theory, cosmology, complexity, honoring John Wheeler's 90th birthday and and its public public publisher is Cambridge University Press. Last I checked, pretty reputable, right? I have to say that thrills me. Wow. But who's going to give him a hand, right? Because neuroscience is really rooted in 19th century mechanistic materialism. Neuroscientists don't study quantum cosmology, they don't study quantum physics, they don't study relativity, they don't study excitations of empty space. They study neurons, they're studying electromagnetic fields, chem- chemical interactions, electrical discharges in the brain. It's all very good. You could have studied all of that in the 19th century. So I think if they're looking for insight into consciousness, for the time being, everything changes. They're not going to get any help from the neuroscientist or psychologists interviewing or studying the facial expressions of ordinary people. That's not going to give much of a handle either. So bring in the, bring in the cavalry. You know, Bring in people who really know something about consciousness. And bring it in from multiple directions. How about a Sikh? How about a Qigong master? How about a Vajrayana practitioner? How about a Zen master? How about a Christian contemplative who can levitate? Boy, I'd love to meet one of those. So... If this is true, now he's raising as a very astute, very knowledgeable and deeply thoughtful physicist, he's raising these issues as questions. He's not now saying, I have spoken, I am a Stanford cosmology, therefore you will believe. He's saying, look, these should be considered. This is not contrary to any known laws of physics. It's an unexplored territory, unexplored domain. So let us understand this more deeply. Well, the questions, the issues, the hypotheses that that he was raising are hypotheses that have been accepted as proven and validated, nailed down in the Dzogchen tradition, Vajrayana tradition, Zen, Chinese, and so forth and so on. And that's just for starters in Buddhism, and that's about Advaita, Vedanta, and so on and so on. And so a lot of people from the contemplative side will say, whoa, good for you, Uh, we can help. We've been doing this for 2,000 years, 3,000 years. Would you like some help? Shall we collaborate? Because you, you have your mag- magnificent mathematics, your technology for understanding the Big Bang and so forth. <coughs> but here's the deal. We're human beings, right? We're human beings according to all that is known by that particular trajectory, that frame of reference of modern science with its 13.8 billion year history and so forth valid with respect to that cognitive frame of reference, right? That we human beings came along only 200,000 years ago, homo sapiens sapiens. We're really new kids on the block, right? And so, if that's all there is to us, then we just came along. We know about the universe. It's been around for, you know, 13.8 billion minus 200,000. That's trivial. So we had nothing to do with it, right? fathoming the nature of a human mind that's only been around for 200,000 years can tell you about the nature of your mind, but why would you think anything else? But what if that's not all there is to it? What if what if your mind is just a, a temper like a wave on an ocean that lasts for 10, 20, 30, 40, 80, 100 years, and then the wave subsides right back into the stream rather than the ocean. Let's just say a stream. And the stream carries on, and the stream the stream carrying all your imprints, all your memories from all your past lives. As a human being, that's all different types of species, on this planet, other planets, this galaxy, other galaxies, that one continuum of your own substrate consciousness, that subtle continuum of mental consciousness, where all those memories are stored, what if you could tap into that? Into that fathomless repository of your own unique trajectory, own experiences, just that one line, not anybody else's line. What if you could tap into that and tap into memories? The Buddha spoke of Hindu yogis before him who could remember what was it? I can't even remember. It was staggering, like, cosmic cycles they could remember by the power of samadhi alone. Not Vipassana, not Jokja, not Mahmudra. power of samadhi alone said, oh, these swamis, they could remember that far. But a Pratyaka Buddha, oh, further. But they're talking about cosmic cycles here. They're tapping into memories prior to the Big Bang. Because Buddhist cosmology goes much further than 13.8 billion years. When we speak of countless eons, 13.8 billion years is a hiccup. So what if? What if you can actually tap into memories that go back millions or even billions of years? Well, each time it's not a memory inside a cocoon, it's a memory of an environment, <clears throat> right? It always is, even in the formless realm. It's an, um, an awareness of a formless environment. That would be quite a massive data storage to tap into because that, that could potentially tap into your memories of experiencing all kinds of environments. In the desire realm, the form realm, the formless realm, as devas, as animals, pretas, and so forth. So that could tell you an awful lot about the physical universes you'd experienced in past lives. And that's kind of a very, very large database. That's just for starters. But what if, what we've just finished here, Chen, there's another dimension, as if that wasn't enough, as if it wasn't enough to experience bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality, going to the first, second, third, fourth jhana. I mean, a lot of people would say, that's, that's quite nice, thank you, I'm quite content. But what if there's something beyond that? And that is this, of course, rik-rikpa, primordial consciousness, pristine awareness, which is right there in the foundation, that from which all multiverses arises, right there in the ground, primordially indivisible from the absolute space of phenomena, which is certainly infinitely more than a mere vacuity, primordially indivisible from the energy of primordial consciousness, and, of course, of primordial consciousness itself, if they're the ground from which all of samsara and nirvana emerge, then knowing that, you would know everything that emerges from that ground. In other words, Big Bang, brains, and so forth. How much would be valuable to share to other people who are really seeking a path to liberation? Do they really need to know about the frontal cortex, the brainstem, hippocampus? Is that really important to know? If what you're recognizing is the reality of suffering, you want to know what are the causes of suffering that you can actually get to and possibly eradicate. Do you need to know about the frontal cortex? It might be helpful, but, but it's a need-to-know basis. Do you need to know about the functionings of the brain to cut through to the sources of suffering? The evidence is in, from my perspective as a Buddhist, the evidence. this is not a hypothetical, like we've not failed for lack of knowledge of the brain. And so, no, you don't need to know that. Then why would the Buddha talk about it? If you know it now, does the Buddha know that or not? How would I know? I'm just an ordinary dope. Not, not a dope, but a centipede. But clearly, that's not necessary knowledge to know about the Big Bang or about the frontal cortex. Not necessary. What is necessary is to know the nature of delusion, craving, and hostility. What is necessary is to know about ethics, samadhi, and wisdom. That's necessary. And if by the by you pick up something about the brain, why not? If it can help, sure. So that would be a response to that. But again, what would be most interesting would be to put it to the test. Now, final, maybe final quote, we're running out of time. But this whole notion, and it's very common. I quoted these because it's not some, I, some view, some opinion, just by one isolated individual. Was off by himself, musing, coming up with anomalous thoughts. Those, those, those thoughts were not foolish. And are there millions of people who share exactly what he just said? Of course. That's why I'm addressing it. It was just some anomaly by some weird person. I wouldn't mention it. But no, that was in a major, major publication. It's been read by millions of people, and I'm sure millions of people agree with him. All right. But fundamentally here, I've heard this so many times as a religious studies scholar, you know, religions disagree. The Christians say this, the Jews say that, the Taoists say this, the Mahayana Buddhists say this, the Theravadans say this. They don't agree. So obviously they don't know what they're talking about. And yogis, you know, the the Qigong masters, they talk about all these nodes of the qi, whereas the Hindus, they've got their their chakra system. But the Vajrayana Buddhists, they have a somewhat different chakra system. Clearly they disagree. So what do they know about after all? So since, you know, these religious people of the world, since they don't agree on anything, really clearly everything they say is suspect. Can't trust any of that, and their experiences, as, as that author said, experiences—they're open to multiple interpretations. So they really should be suspect, right? It's a view very commonly held, you know. But it shows an incredible naivete with respect to how science actually works, because from the time of the debate between Leibniz and Newton—big debate, fundamental disagreement about the nature of energy and so forth. Uh, There have been debates all along, that's what science does. There's debate, debate, wherever there's cutting edge, there's debate, there's consensus, but even though where there's consensus, debates still sometimes continue. So let's take that theme, that'll maybe be the last one for this afternoon. The notion that contemplative experiences about other planes of existence, about spiritual energies or prana, about, let's say, Buddha nature or substrate consciousness and so forth, that these are suspect because... The Hindus call it jiva, and it's not quite the same as the Buddhist notion of substrate consciousness. The Dzogchen, or substrate consciousness, is not exactly identical to the Theravada notion of bhavanga. They're not exactly the same. So does that discount them? Because these experiences coming out of meditation are open to rival interpretations. Well, here's a citation from another of my books. I'm so promoting myself, it's unbelievable. Uh, This is from Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic. I quote, from this great authority, his name is Alan Wallace. Uh, The materialist worldview is fundamentally rooted in physics. I mean, if you're really saying everything boils down to matter, who knows more about matter than anybody else, at least in the modern paradigm? Well, of course, physicists, they started the whole show. It was Galileo that started the revolution in science, scientific revolution. So it's rooted in physics. So before we invest ourselves too heavily in the belief that all biological and mental phenomena must be emergent properties of lifeless, unconscious matter, which is the standard view in all journalism, virtually all of biology, chemistry, physics, it's kind of the standard view, hardly ever questioned. But of course there is no scientific theory of the origins of life or the origins of consciousness. A lot of ideas, no scientific theory, none of them can be tested. So before doing that, it would be worthwhile to assess where cutting-edge physics stands today. That is, of all of this, this whole assumption that life emerges from inorganic matter and Consciousness from biological matter and so forth, but if, you know, then let's check, check in. Let's do a little reality check here. With those, that branch of physics, that there's a general consensus, has the deepest insight into the nature of matter. Matter energy. It's quantum mechanics. It's uncontested. They have the deepest insight. They've probed right down to elementary particles, made astonishing discoveries, triggered a second revolution in physics, quantum, quantum physics and relativity theory. So where does cutting-edge physics stand today? I continue, the field of quantum mechanics is the most fundamental branch of physics with the deepest insights into the nature of matter and energy. I think that's uncontested. It's also, I can just say, among all fields of physics, quantum, quantum mechanics is the most successful. It's a wide consensus on the most successful. In terms of the explanatory power and the kind of technologies that have come out of quantum mechanics blows the mind. The cell phone I'm holding in my hand, impossible without quantum mechanics. The wristwatch on my wrist, impossible without quantum mechanics. This is a quartz crystal watch like everybody else's. So it is phenomenal success. Uncontested. The most successful. So let's check this out. In his recent book entitled Quantum, science writer Manjit Kumar cites a poll about the interpretation of quantum mechanics taken among physicists at a qu- conference in 1999. Of the 90 respondents, only four said they accepted the standard interpretation sought in er- taught in every undergraduate physics course in the world. Only four. And that's the standard one. That's what you get in the physics textbook, right, when you're learning quantum mechanics. Only four out of what? Ninety. 90. That seems like an incongruity there. Taught in every physics course in the world, 30 out of 90 accepted the many-worlds interpretation formulated by Princeton theoretician Hugh Everett, uh, and there's no empirical evidence for that at all. It's an interesting theory, but there's no empirical evidence at all, and there's consensus on that. Nobody thinks there's any evidence for it. I won't explain it, but on that point there's consensus. They all know there is no evidence supporting the multiple worlds, but 30 out of 90 believe that. That's interesting. And only four believe the standard one, while 50 replied... None of the above, or undecided. In other words, what does it mean about the nature of reality? The real implications of quantum physics seems to be hidden in a cloud of uncertainty. One more quote, and we won't be dinner time. It's dinner time, but this will be a short quote. Another quote from the same book, this best-selling book uh, called <laughs> "I never persuade anybody when I say that I get it. Okay. but best-selling in my family. You know. To investigate recent advances in physics and where it is headed, we may look to a conference held at Caltech at the beginning of 2010. So very recent. Caltech, everybody knows, right? MIT on the East Coast, Caltech on the West. Called the Physics of the Universe Summit. They were not modest. (laughs) (laughs) It should be said in Physics of the Universe Summit. It's cool. I like that. I mean, why not? which was designed to set the research agenda for the rest of the 21st century. Well, that is really bold. This was intended to provide a setting in which physicists from around the world were to avoid groupthink, quotation, and to be daring, quotation, to be daring even at the expense of being wrong. According to the instructions, anybody who comes to this, these are the instructions. Avoid groupthink, be daring even at the expense of being wrong, according to the instructions of Maria who organized this event. In other words, a time to be daring. Take your hats off. The tape recorder's off. Let it spill out. Be wild. Be crazy. Come up with some new idea. Excite us. Be ridiculous. It'll be okay. But the results were not what the organizers had in mind. Joseph D. Licken of the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, who helped coordinate the meeting, commented, We're confused and we're probably going to be confused for a long time. Lawrence Krauss, a cosmology from Arizona State University, added that not only are most contemporary theories wrong, but most data are also wrong. At first, subject to glaring uncertainties. The recent history of physics, he said, is full of promising discoveries that appeared, disappeared because they could not be repeated. So this is about a branch of physics that I find absolutely fascinating. I have studied it rather extensively, spoken, I've had the privilege of speaking with some world-class people in the, in the field. And um, to say that it's subject to rival, multiple rival interpretations is, I think, safe to say, a drastic understatement. Does that discount quantum mechanics? That any statement from quantum mechanics is suspect because they're somewhat confused and have no consensus And what this actually says about the nature of reality? Well, evidently not. It's brilliant physics. There's a lot of brilliant research behind it, technology coming out of it. But what does it really mean? And this real sticking point for 90 years now, what's the role of that doggone observer? What is a measurement? What's required for measurement? How do we ever get a world of actuality out of a world of sheer potentiality? A world that is in a superposition state which means it's not yet crystallized into this and that. But then a measurement takes place, and now you have a world where there are real things there that has causal efficacy. How does that occur? And there is, And I just spoke with a top physicist, and I, I said, I don't, see any, I don't see any progress in the last 90 years. Do you? He said, no. No? All right. So, to my mind, I and on this note, it's dinner time. To my mind, the... The nature of consciousness, the role of consciousness in the universe has been marginalized, ignored, covered over, remained in darkness for the whole history of modern science. And it's just thrilling to me to think that that dark age of consciousness may be coming to an end. Because I'm meeting more and more physicists, the one that spent about an hour and a half in conversation with me about meditation about a week or two ago and a number of others, not a high percentage, but who needs a high percentage? Revolutions never happen because of majority rule. They always, always start with a minority, every single time. Minority of one, minority of one laboratory. They always start small. And then if they have integrity, if they have great explanatory power, if they have practical benefit, then the revolution is set in motion. So quite thrilling times, I think, to be in. To seek out such people, but then, final note: 2003, we had a our first public of life meeting for the of life institute. I was very, very much involved in the institute at that time. Had been from the inception in 1987, and it was just a celebration. It was just a one-day conference. It was just magnificent. The, uh, His holiness was front and center, and they sold the tickets. It was in uh, the major auditorium, I can't remember right now, but the big auditorium, a big auditorium at, at MIT. And uh, they sold the tickets online. They sold out in like 30 minutes. You know, The place was packed. And we had this wonderful, really fine group of, there was George Drifus, very, very good uh, Buddhist scholar. Machu Ricard was there. Amaro Bhikkhu, excellent. Theravada monk was there. Some others, I spoke there. Then on the scientific side, just... Crème de la crème, you know. So marvelous. And then His Holiness was right in the center. I was on his left, to Nijimba on his right, doing a bit of interpreting. He was the primary interpreter, of course. Uh, It was really a celebration of sharing multiple perspectives uh, from the Buddha side, from the scientific side, and then having dialogue. But what I really, one of the things I remember most vividly about the whole experience was at the end of the day, there was a scientist, I I, I maintained a friendship with him, He's at, Cal- at MIT. He's one of the leading experts on genetics. He has his own laboratory, the Whitehead Institute at MIT. A lovely man, really. I mean, he's just like, he's kind of like my ideal of what a scientist should be. He's brilliant, he's warm-hearted, he's open, excellent research, but he's so open. And he listened to all these Buddhists. I was talking about Shamata, and George Davis took about mental factors. Matthew, Matthew Ricard spoke about stage degeneration. Uh, you know, and Bhikkhu Amaro t- spoke of the book, of course, about Satipatthana. And His Holiness was His Holiness. He covered any topic that he felt like addressing. And so Eric Lander is the name of my hero, uh, this geneticist. And we had also dinner with him. It was such a treat. And uh, he listened to everything. It was the closing comments. And uh, he's, it, was just, it was just one of the best talks I've ever heard. What can I say? And he said, well, we've heard some extraordinary, some very, very interesting accounts here, talks by our Buddhist scholars and contemplatives here. I find them very, very intriguing, these statements you know, of various aspects of the mind, potentials of the mind. Uh, this really whets the appetite, it arouses the interest. But now, of course, on this side, it really, really was, the Dalai Lama was in the center, all the Buddhists on one side, all the scientists on the other side. You know. And he said, but, you know, for us scientists, we're always looking for evidence. We're looking for empirical evidence. And so, can you... Remember the movie, Show Us the Money? Can you... Not the money, but can you show us... Can you you bring us yogis who are accomplished in state regeneration, who have achieved shamatha, who have profound insight, who have actually experienced... And so they can actually speak directly from their own experience... And maybe they can display, whether you didn't say it, but levitation, tummo, rainbows, rainbow body would be nice, tuk tam, don't die too soon. You know, can you show us? Because that's what we scientists do. We look for evidence. And talk is really good. He didn't say talk is cheap. It wasn't cheap. These were all very, very accomplished meditators and, 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 and scholars. But he said, if you can show us the evidence for what you're saying, we'll be so interested. And then we'll take this a step further, you know? So you know where I go. Let me talk long enough, and the conversation always comes to contemplative observatories. <laughs> we can talk about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. If we talk about it long enough, you know what we really need is contemplative observatories. Because <laughs> only then will we really fathom the nature of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know, right down to the empty inherent natu- emptiness of inherent nature. And if you understand the emptiness of inherent nature of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, the rest of the world is going to fall right in line. You know, So therefore, let's have contemplative observatories, mind centers, where we bring everybody together, we work together, and we create a revolution. So it had to be coming. There it is. A revolution in the mind sciences and a renaissance in the contemplative. Both are definitely necessary. Both tend to be bogged down in inertia, in tradition, in in unquestioned assumptions. I would say equally, frankly. Equally. And I'm not disparaging either one. But they both have a lot of baggage. And if we can come out of that, refresh that open-minded, radically empirical, intelligent, critical, but fantastically inquisitive spirit of scientific inquiry, and the spirit, the yearning for freedom and awakening that comes only through knowing reality as it is, if that's revitalized, we, we, Bring to light, blow on the glowing embers of Shama Devapashana, and then on beyond that, stage of generation completion, Mahamudra Dzogchen. There's no limit. There's really no limit. Yeah. Such benefit could come. Tremendous benefit. So when I speak of these, this now this is big talk, isn't it? They were speaking about the big, big summit at Caltech a revolution in the mind sciences percolating all the way down to physics, a renaissance of contemplative inquiry in the world. It's big talk, big talk. So we can ask, well, is that going to happen or not? And my answer is, yes, it will happen. And the reason I say is because it's already happening. It's already happening. I brought about that revolution in my mind. My approach to science is that. My approach to Buddhism is that. I'm nothing special. I'm, I'm, I'm not an Einstein. I'm not a Tsongkhapa. I'm, I'm really not at all. But yeah, I'm a contemplative scientist. Pipsqueak. But nevertheless, that's what I would call myself. I'm a contemplative because that's what I've been doing for the last many, many years. And I'm a scientist because my approach to Buddhism is really wanting to know and by way of knowing to be free and purify my mind. And so that renaissance of contemplative inquiry has already taken place in my mindstream. It's a fait accompli. And the revolution of the mind sciences, well, I've definitely bolted from so many of the assumptions and beliefs and methodologies of the modern mind sciences. I'm not stuck there. I respect it. But I also know it's limitations. And so it's already started here. But of course, when I say that, and I say, oh, look at me, look at me. I'm the first one. Silly. No. There are many people. I'm not the only one. So this will happen. It is happening it is happening I'm just one but it's happening the only question is how how large will it happen it's happening in this room so it's already happening we don't have to wonder will it happen one day it's already happening in this room and it's happening in other rooms it's happening in the minds of people who are listening by podcast and it's happening in the minds of people who have never heard my name or anything I say I have no monopoly on this right and so it's happening So with prayers, with aspirations, with dedication to practice, it may happen more swiftly and become evident to more and more and more and bring about really a truly wonderful transformation in this world, which I feel has never more desperately and urgently needed such a transformation. It's my belief. So once again, I took a great big bite out of your dinner time, (laughs) but with no apologies. Enjoy your dinner. I'll see you tomorrow morning.